Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Vivek Ramaswamy. He is an entrepreneur. He is also author of an important book that just came out called Woke Incorporated, Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam, our topic today. Welcome, Vivek. Good to be here. All right. Uh, You know, right up in the opening of the book, I was struck by the way you called yourself a traitor to your class. Uh, That's what they said of FDR uh, back, uh, back in the 1930s. How did you come to this particular topic? Well, look, I mean, I have been a scientist by background for years. Then I was an investor, and then I became a biotech entrepreneur and CEO. So suffice to say, it was a different world that I was operating in. But I would say around 2019, I began to see that all of my peers in the business world, in the investment community, fellow CEOs, all of a sudden started saying the same things about a revised purpose of their business, about reciting the same slogans with respect to a narrow set of social justice issues that just made me curious about the essence of what was going on. And so it was a sort of curiosity about a phenomenon that happened all of a sudden, beginning in 2018 or 2019, that really caught my attention. And the more I scratched the surface, the more I personally felt a little bit uneasy about it, because I thought the essence of what was happening to me, as I I viewed it, was that these leaders in positions of power in Silicon Valley and, you know, let's just say other industries were realized it recognized the fact that they could use the appearance of caring about something other than profit and power precisely to gain more of each of them. And it (laughs) wasn't just the hypocrisy that bothered me, but my concern that that was actually going to threaten the integrity of public trust in our institutions. And really in ways that I describe in the book, the integrity of our democracy itself. So, So that's what got me started. And it's been a journey since then. Right. Uh, uh, and well, you can you, uh, feel free to go back and, and give any any anecdotes, any encounters that you had. But let me the general question is, why do corporate titans today uh, or in recent years have to pretend that they care a lot more uh, about things than just making money? Yeah. So, so it's a good question. That's the question that's at the heart of the book. One of the one of the stories that I trace actually begins back to the 2008 financial crisis. I had just gotten my first job out of college in New York City in the fall of 2007 at a hedge fund. So I had a front row seat to the 08 financial crisis. And what happened after the 08 crisis was that corporations and banks and so on, they were viewed as the bad guys in the eyes of the old left in this country. And they what they realized they could do is that actually they could go from being the bad guys to being the good guys 
if they just came around to saying the right things. Occupy Wall Street was a pretty difficult pill, for example, for Wall Street to swallow. But the new woke progressive stuff was actually pretty easy. You applaud diversity and inclusion. You put some token minorities on your boards. You muse about the racially disparate impact of climate change after you fly in a private jet to Davos. <laughs> this is actually pretty good work if you could get it. Yeah. And, so, yeah. and so what happened was they used this new marriage with the new woke left movement to be able to defang the Occupy Wall Street movement. In fact, the joke I tell in the book is effectively you got a bunch of big banks that got in bed with a bunch of woke millennials. Together, yeah. they birthed woke capitalism, and they used that to put Occupy Wall Street up for adoption. And so, so that's not the entire story, but that's a, an important part of the history is that you had big businesses in this country using this smokescreen to deflect accountability from their customers, from the government, from the public, for ire that they had towards big business in this country by changing the subject to something else. Did Occupy Wall Street, at least at first, uh, did it shake the the titans a bit, Wall Street? I think it did. I absolutely yeah. think it did. I think it did so in, one, in two ways. One was a fear about retributive governmental power that could regulate capitalism as they conceived of it out of existence. Now, yeah. I think that a lot of what we had pre-2008 was really just a form of crony capitalism anyway. But let's put that to one side. Some of it was a very practical fear. But some of it was also, I think, a psychological issue, right? I mean, if, if you, even if you run a big bank and make $100 million a year or whatever, you're still a human being. And nobody likes to be criticized as a bad guy. And I think a lot of the people who even the titans who run big banks don't think of themselves as cynical, Machiavellian, wealth-generating automatons. They, they like to think of themselves as good people. And I think it sort of shakes their psychic foundation, it's dystonic with their ego, to be able to hear criticism that suggests that they're anything but the way that they would want to imagine themselves. And so I think it was, some of it was purely cynical and profit-oriented, but a lot of it actually was just a psychic apology to themselves, to be able to say, no, 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 we actually are the good guys to the outside world, and to be able to tell themselves that internally too. The irony is they actually cause much more damage by projecting the do-good smokescreen than they would just authentically describe exactly what it is that they're after, which is, which is to make more money and make more profit. And I personally think there's nothing wrong with that, as long as you're actually open about it through the front door. You know, if I may, there's actually a funny story that, that reminds me of that I tell in the book too, Mark, which, uh, you know, which had to do with my summer working at Goldman Sachs in the fall, in the, in the summer of 2006 as an intern. And you know, one of the things I noticed when you work there is that the people at the top of the food chain at Goldman Sachs, you know, they would drive expensive cars, have their houses in the Hamptons, wear tailor-made shoots and expensive tailor-made suits and expensive shirts. But they would always wear, the managing directors would, they would always wear these cheap stopwatch rubber wrist strap style watches and prominently juxtapose them next to the expensive clothes that they otherwise would wear in this false show of humility. And, you know, we, we actually one day that summer did service day where we were supposed to go to Harlem yeah. to plant trees. And, and the irony was that actually once we showed up in Harlem, the boss was nowhere to be found. Nobody was really planting trees. Everybody took some pictures and then went out and, and ultimately went to a bar nearby and went drinking for the rest of the day. And, 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 and Vivek, you, you actually yeah. went believing that you would actually plant trees. Exactly. Because that's what they said we were going to do. I made, the, I, I made the cardinal error of believing that somebody actually meant what they were saying. Yeah, they said it's a day to plant trees. I thought we'd go plant some trees. I'm not, I'm not some sort of, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm environmentally sympathetic, but I'm not some sort of environmentalist. I'm not some sort of left-wing activist. But I thought the idea of planting trees was a great idea. Yeah. And we didn't do it. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the funny thing was 
the the net insight I gained from it is that Goldman was just playing the game far more adeptly than their competitors back in 2006, because today that's what all of big business does too, is to project the do good smoke screen as a substitute for actually doing true good through their business. And, and one of the, one of the quips I make in the book is that, you know what, the world might just be a better place if the, the bankers at Goldman Sachs wore their Rolexes to work instead of preaching about diversity and pretending to plant trees. Yet that's the world we live in today. Yeah. I want to get to a couple biographical questions, but first let me ask the general point about what you just said. How much do ordinary Americans buy this? Yeah, so it's a good question. I mean, I think that the answer is to some extent. So I think that you have first a generation of millennials and Gen Z and younger consumers who demand that the companies they buy their products from demonstrate values that are social values that are similar to ones they espouse. And I think there's a deeper issue going on there, Mark, and I think this is really the heart of the matter, is that you have an entire generation in this country, my generation really, that is hungry for a purpose, hungry for cause, hungry for meaning and identity. And as that sense of purpose and that, that sense for hunger has been left unfulfilled by the kinds of things that might have filled that hunger in generations past, from faith or patriotism or family or hard work, what you have instead is this moral void that you know, is ultimately filled by this cheap form of mixing morality with commercialism, the equivalent of filling this moral hunger with fast food, going to Ben and Jerry's and getting a cup of ice cream with a, with a cup of morality on the side. Hmm. That's not the way true virtue works. And yeah. I think that the real answer to, to this cultural moment we're in is to fill that hunger with a more substantial fare. And I think that that's the ultimate solution to all of this. Now, that's easier said than done, but I think that that is the, the work that we have cut out for us as a people, as Americans, I think in the decade ahead is to fill that moral void with something more meaningful. To, to your question, you know, do people buy it? No, I think that, you know, I mean, my book, I think maybe helped move the needle a little bit, but I think people aren't, people aren't stupid. They recognized even before that companies probably didn't mean 100% of what they said, but still lived with a world in which at least if they're advancing the values that I care about, then I'll give them some, I'll cut them some slack, even if they're not being totally authentic, because I'd still rather than use that corporate power to advance these particular values than to have no one advance them at all. Hmm. And so that's, that's, I think, the heart of the debate. And, and I come out on the side of the debate that says that we should actually say what we mean, that we shouldn't want corporations using their market power to flex their muscle in the marketplace of ideas, that we should leave those questions to be sorted out through free speech and open debate in the public square through our democracy as citizens where everyone's voice and vote counts equally rather than being settled through economic force based on who wields the most dollars. And, and to me, that's not a right-wing idea or a left-wing idea. It's a fundamentally American idea, and that's the heart of what the book's all about. Uh, you spent some time going into your own background what do you think it was in your, in your, I don't know, your family, your upbringing that made you into a, quote, defector? Well, you know, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I, it's hard to pinpoint one's own psychological uh, <laughs> roots uh, in, in, a, in a clear way. But I've always been something of a contrarian. I, uh, I grew up in southwest Ohio. I went to a public school where I was you know, one of the few Indian American kids, but also one of the few kids who wanted to pursue academics as a, as a place where I focused my attention. At the same time, I also then went to a K 
Catholic high school where I was one of the lone Hindu students in that school. And, and I think that there was something about that experience that kind of gave me the sense of, you know, being alone a little bit. And I think that, that some of the, some of the value that comes from being alone and I don't mean being alone in terms of not being, having the support of friends or family around you. Cause I, I did enjoy a lot of that, but I mean, being in settings where at least you were out of your comfort zone a little bit, Yeah. you know, went to Harvard. I, I was, you know, probably libertarian minded, but politically very different than a lot of my peers. And I got a better education because of it, too. And so I think it was in some ways having been rewarded by having been outside the pack for a lot of my upbringing. You know, not in all ways, but but at least in some ways that kind of made me into a contrarian. So there's probably some element of that that stuck me stuck with me ever since. But yeah. it's hard to psychoanalyze yourself. So yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. The, uh, the best I could do. There are a lot of revealing vignettes uh, in the book. What was the story of the fearless girl? <laughs> well, that's a, that's, a, that's one of many demonstrative examples of, of sort of what we uh, what we see in the woke industrial complex. So, so one day on Wall Street, uh, the, there's the iconic Wall Street bull, and and what you see was there's a statue that pops up across from that bull, which was Phyllis Girl. She's a, a feminist icon. It's a girl standing up to Wall Street, and at the placard at her feet, it says in all capital letters. S-H-E, she makes a difference. Well, that seems like a fine enough message for those who are into that kind of thing. Turns out that that statue had been commissioned by State Street Global Advisors, uh, one, of, one of the asset management firms here in the United States, a large one. Now, if you look really closely, S-H-E stands not just for she, fearless girl. It also, stands, it also stood for S-H-E, capital S-H-E, the ticker of the exchange traded fund, the diversity, gender diversity index fund that State Street had actually sponsored. And so it turned out this was not just a expression of feminism, but it was a nice advertising slogan, a line item from their marketing budget for their <laughs> ETF. This is Perfect. how they make money. But, but, but it gets even better. It gets even better, Mark. So turns out that the statue's creator, Kristen Visible, was an authentic feminist who, who took a lot of pride in her work. And she made two more copies of Fearless Girl. But as I say in the book, if you're a big business investing in your advertising and marketing line, it's like a magic trick. It's not enough to make the money disappear. You have to bring it back. What they did is they actually sued Kristen Visible for making three unauthorized reproductions of the statue, <laughs> a fearless girl. And you really can't make this stuff up. And, you know, you take a firm like State Street, they're, they're like an amateur compared to Goldman Sachs. More championship level players like Goldman would never do something like that. But it reveals the artifice for what it is. And so, you know, the book is chock full of these stories. That's just one of them that uh, was particularly illustrative of the, in a simple way of the kind of issue that I'm laying out more broadly. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Uh, well, let's get back to a little bit of the defection motif. You wrote an op-ed about social media companies' response to the January 6th uh, riot. What did you argue in that op-ed? 
Well, it was a relatively technical op-ed. I, I co-wrote it with Jed Rubenfeld, a former law professor of mine from Yale. I actually never had him for a class, but he was a law professor at Yale while I was a student there. And, and the, the case we made was, in my opinion, a, a relatively simple one at its core, which said that actually normally private companies are free to decide what does and doesn't show up on their websites. But when a private company is responding to the threat to the threats of government and is immunized by government to do what private companies can't do normally – then actually, if the government is using a private company to do its own work, then the doctrine of state action still applies, which means that actually those companies are bound by the same constraints as the federal government, including the Constitution to the United States. So, for example, if a big tech company is censoring content that the government cannot censor directly under the First Amendment and is censoring that content because they're responding to a threat of the government or working hand in glove with the government, then they ought to be bound by the First Amendment, too, even if they're nominally a private company. A provocative legal case, but, but if I may say myself, uh, uh, an argued case that draws from a wealth of Supreme Court precedents. And you can you know, take a look at this in the Wall Street Journal I wrote in January. A few months later, I wrote a follow-up piece as well. Yeah. That was the nature of the piece. Uh, and I was, how, well, well, how did people respond to your op-ed? Well, well the, the country was in such a charged place after January 6th, and that way still is today. But what happened was three advisors to my company resigned in the week following that op-ed. And, and that was a wake-up call for me, teaching me that, look, given the moment we lived in, even though I was speaking in my voice as a citizen and was not using my company as a platform to do it, the moment that we lived in demands that we ultimately uh, you know, separate our um, you know, separate our status as citizens from our status as CEOs. And so that's what prompted me to step down as a CEO and ultimately, uh, you know, decide to write this book in a way that was allowed me to speak out freely as a citizen, but didn't, but didn't require me to filter that through the prism of corporate self-interest. And, you know, I know we're, we're coming to the, you know, end of our, uh, end of our time, but suffice to say that, it was, it was quite a journey that brought me there, Mark, and, and I appreciate that people like you have taken such an interest in reading the book, uh, and, and I hope that many people do, not because I hope to, but that everyone agrees with what I have to say, but one of the things that I realized is that the right answer going forward as a country has to be to start talking openly again, and I wasn't free to do that as a CEO, but now I am as an ordinary citizen, and, and you know, I'm, I'm taking advantage of that and enjoying it and hope more people do the same. Is, isn't it nice, Vivek, when you're free to speak your mind? Don't, don't you feel Amen. tremendous relief when you can just say it? There's no greater satisfaction than to feel free to express yourself. And, and by the way, give your neighbors who may have different opinions than you the same courtesy in return. Yeah, That's part of what this country is about. And you know, I'm glad that's why we got to chat, Mark. I mean, people like you who are hosting forums like this one create that space at a time where I think we could use it more. So, you know, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. No, no, no. Thank you for, for, for opening up. Uh, a side question. Uh, don't woke policies cost a business time and money? They do, but it's like a cost of doing business, you know, in yeah. a certain sense. There's lots of costs and there's lots of taxes on doing a business, on running a business. This is just one of those postmodern taxes. So, yes, but I think if it's buying you a form of insurance against greater risk or retribution, that's just, you know, I think something that a lot of leaders cynically view as a cost of doing business today. It's really that simple. Yeah, yeah.
Uh, do these woke capitalists have any idea that ordinary Americans really aren't much interested in what they have to say on social matters, matters separate from their business? Are they just clueless or are, just, are they just speaking to the activists who are pressuring them? You know, I think that uh, I think it depends. I mean, there's no there's no end all be all answer. There's no sort of there's there's no one formula. I think that some businesses are very self-aware about it, but realize their customer segments are ones that they care about more than the general population at large, in which case you could argue it makes sense for them. For others, they are clueless. For others, they realize that they may have a diverse range of consumers, but certain consumers are going to cause them more trouble than others, and so they'll disproportionately cater to them in the things they say. So I think it's, I think it's really a mix, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you use the term stakeholder capitalism. Well, what is the definition of that? Yeah, sure. So stakeholder capitalism is is basically a uh, a description of the new idea that businesses should not just serve their shareholders, but should also serve multiple stakeholders of their business. The environment is a stakeholder. Workers are a stakeholder. Minority communities may be a stakeholder. On the face of it, it sounds like a pretty benign idea, but I think that the real problem with it was the concept we were alluding to earlier, where effectively it demands that a small group of elites, of business leaders, determine behind closed doors what ought to be determined through by our citizenry at large through our democracy. That's kind of what the American process was supposed to be all about. And it actually reminds me more of old world Europe, where a group of church leaders and labor leaders and business leaders used to decide behind closed doors what was good for the rest of society. Whereas the American system was about rejecting that vision to say that we have a one person, one voice system where every citizen's voice ought to count equally in settling moral questions. And so, yeah, that's the that's the real critique of stakeholder capitalism that I offer in the book. Yeah. Uh, another vignette. You attended a closed J.P. Morgan forum in 2019. Uh, what did you see and hear there? Well, it was a uh, it was a <laughs> another one of these demonstrative cases of let's just say candor unintentionally uh, unintentionally conveyed. So, you know, J- Jamie Dimon and, and J.P. Morgan hosted a group of founders for a luncheon with Jamie Dimon. And, and he was, you know, spouting off about one social issue after another. And someone raised their hand and asked him from the audience, well, Jamie, would you ever want to be president? And without missing a beat, the first thing that he said is, of course, I would want to be president. I just wouldn't want to go through the process of running for president. And everybody in the audience bursts out laughing, not because it was so obviously false, but because it was so obviously true. And and there was something really fundamentally honest about it, actually, that I think he expressed the sentiment of a lot of the modern stakeholder capitalists, where the thing they want is to exercise quasi-political power, but without going through the political process with the backstops of political accountability built in. And I think that that's the essence of of what my critique is actually all about, Mark. You... Uh, had a lot to say as the protests, the George Lloyd protests in the summer of, of the, uh, the upheavals last year. How did you, how did you interpret those protests? And maybe maybe you, you talk about the whole Black Lives Matter movement. What was your take 
on that whole phenomenon. Yeah, so I, uh, I'm no fan of the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm just going to put that out there right now because I think that it makes the same mistake as a lot of these woke corporations by appearing to advance the interests of a group in Black Lives Matter, appearing to advance the interest of black lives while actually betraying the very thing they claim to safeguard. The Black Lives Matter movement last year called for the decimation of the nuclear family structure. The nuclear family structure is, I think, one of the things that's actually lifted up more black people, more people more generally, but black people included, out of poor conditions than perhaps any other governmental institution at all is an institution that exists outside the government, namely a stable family. That's just one example of the way in which a small group of people in the guise of a Black Lives Matter movement have, have really espoused policies and cultural agendas that I think set all people, including black people, back. That being said, again, we have this generational hunger for a cause and the narrative that's created by a media environment when, you know, no doubt a tragic death on, for, of George Floyd, but nonetheless, there's tragic deaths of many kinds every day. This particular tragic death was co-opted as an opportunity to advance an agenda that I don't think really served the very people it was even claiming to serve. And, and I think that it comes back to this theme, Mark, of having to fill that moral hunger with something more unifying, something that's more significant, something that's far deeper, rather than sort of these skin deep social causes that we, that we adopt on a given day. And I think that's the, that's the real defining challenge of our time. You uh, wrote a letter to all of your workers. Uh, what, what did the letter say? And how did the workers, your employees, react? Yeah, sure. And, and maybe we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll close on this point, Mark, because I think it, um, you know, it nicely ties up how my own personal experience, um, you know, really bore out some of the issues I was writing about, but in a way that struck me close to home. And so, you know, I, I, I sent a letter to the employees and, you know, what I learned was that actually they didn't want to hear from me by way of a general letter acknowledging that it was a difficult time. There were a number of people who actually wanted me to specifically issue the same sort of public statement that every other corporation was making and CEO was making, which was embracing the Black Lives Matter movement and particularly acknowledging systemic racism in the United States. And there was a certain precious few words that you could deviate from that basic script on. And, you know, I understand where they were coming from because that's how many other CEOs had framed their comments. And it was as though each one made a carbon copy of the other's quotes. At the same time, I didn't want to say something inauthentic and be dishonest about what my own perspective was, which is that I think that systemic racism is poorly defined. I, I think that nobody has actually bothered to define exactly what systemic racism means. And it's sloppily defined because it actually allows people who are able to then co-opt that concept to be able to advance their own agendas. For example, the Black Lives Matter movement accomplishing its own agenda at the expense of the people who it's supposed to safeguard. So nonetheless, I was in a dilemma because I didn't want to be in a position to say something I didn't believe. At the same time, I had a group of earnest, hardworking, loyal employees, some of whom, not all of them, by the way, but, but a small number of whom really wanted me to say the same thing that every other CEO was saying. And I was troubled by the fact that I couldn't do so authentically. So, you know, I think after weeks of reflection, uh, one of the things that we did do as a company was use it as an occasion to be introspective about whether we were doing one of the things that we said was really important to us as a company. We said, 
think big, stay scrappy. As long as I was CEO, at least that was one of the things that I would say as a company, as I told you before, I'm no longer CEO, but I'm sort of telling you what the experience was in 2020 back when I was. And you know, one of the things that, about being scrappy is that it may entail recruiting people for scrappiness. And I wasn't sure that we were doing that just by going to places like Harvard and Yale uh, and, and sort of getting you know, kids who were academically excellent, but we weren't really selecting for scrappiness. And so one of the things that I'm not saying it was a perfect solution and I'm still a little conflicted about it, but one of the things that we did was we adopted a new program last year that said that we were actually going to purposefully also recruit kids who had grown up in economically more challenging circumstances below the 50th percentile, at least of median household income. And if they came to the company with student debts, then the company would assume those student debts. If somebody uh, up to a certain amount, you know, I want to say it was, you know, something like a hundred thousand dollars if they stayed with the company for four years, because that means they were really committed to the company and were good enough to have been kept for that long. And you know, I think that, that satisfied a lot of people. They didn't mention race. They didn't mention gender. It didn't mention sexual orientation. It wasn't based on identity politics. If, if you're white, you're black, it doesn't matter. If you came from conditions of economic hardship, that might be a good proxy for yeah. having to have a, the kind of background that trains you to be scrappy. But it was the kind of thing that I think at least felt more authentic to me. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you can do that and, and feel like, one, it's good for the business. Uh, you're... you're you're building loyalty, and you're helping out those who uh, those who are hungry, ready to work. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me maybe maybe, maybe for this uh, is is woke capitalism sustainable? Do, do you do you what do you let me ask let me put it this way what do you see happening with woke capitalism in the next five years is it just going to be an intensify more powerful more intimidating or are you going to start seeing some implosion take place yeah so what i predict and and uh you know maybe we'll close on this mark is um you know it's a prediction for the future so i I've, you know the best the best predictions are made in retrospect but <laughs> i'll make this one ex ante is that I think in the next few years, we're going to see a number of businesses crop up that take the consumer base that has been neglected or feels neglected by big businesses in this country that have bent the knee to one wing of progressive orthodoxy and to be able to say that, okay, there's a majority of Americans who feel differently. I'm going to build, build my business in a way that speaks to them, that speaks to the virtues of family or law enforcement or standing by law enforcement or standing by the Bill of Rights and standing by basic American values in a shared unifying way in response to companies that embrace postmodern progressive orthodoxies around systemic racism and transgenderism and whatever else. I think you're going to see that counter response. Now, I don't want to see the formation of two economies, but what I'm hoping happens as a consequence of that is that the rest of corporate America wakes up and realizes how much they have neglected the broader general population in America that may be quieter, but maybe quietly frustrated in, in their neglect as well, and that things begin to normalize. I think that's going to take leaders who are willing to step up as citizens in the commercial sphere, in the political sphere, to be able to swing that pendulum back. But I'm an optimist, and I think that's where I hope we're going to be heading. And one of my goals with the book was to be able to write a book that provides a clear-eyed view of the problem, because once people are able to see through the progressive woke smokescreen, including the corporate smokescreen that propagates it, 
that may be the first step towards a solution. So that's my hope, Mark, and I want to thank you for having me today. The book is Woke Incorporated, Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. Vivek Ramaswamy, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.